Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good evening and welcome to Daisy Cousins Presents. I'm Daisy Cousins and I am thrilled to be right here every week, twice a week on ADH-TV. And boy, do we have an exciting show for you tonight. Anyone who has followed my political commentary really from its inception will know I have always pointed out there is a left-wing double standard when it comes to conservative women. That is, left-wing feminists, who are mostly women, will scream from the rooftops about the importance of language and tone when discussing or addressing women. They will decry the slightest insult of a woman with an opinion as a sexist swipe and demand we not use words like crazy or hysterical to describe them. They'll talk about online misogyny until the cows come home and swear that all women should be able to express an opinion publicly without fear of sexist abuse. That is, unless that woman with an opinion is conservative. When a conservative woman opens her mouth to speak publicly, it's like the feminism switch gets mysteriously turned off. Suddenly, it's okay to level every gendered insult you can think of at a woman expressing a right-wing viewpoint. It's encouraged to hound them on social media, to berate their friends and colleagues, and to mock them for their appearance. Now, none of this is surprising. We all know that the left doesn't actually care about people. They only care about politics. Hence the fact you can put this double standard when it comes to women to a leftist, and the response will be a derivative of, yeah, so? However, this left-wing vitriol and hypocrisy is multiplied by at least a factor of 50 when a woman, that is, an adult human female, dares to criticize the trans lobby. When a woman, particularly a successful woman, has the audacity to protest the modern trend of males claiming they are women because they feel like they are and demanding access to women's spaces, she might as well walk herself to the pyre in preparation to be burned at the stake. It is an insidious misogyny, and my guest this evening knows it all too well. Yes, joining me tonight is a true pioneer for women's rights, not a fake feminist who claims to stand for women, but is the first to succumb to the trans lobby for the sake of receiving male approval, the irony. She's a lawyer, an activist, and she ran as Liberal Party candidate for the seat of Warringah at the 2022 Australian federal election. She is the brilliantly brave, the fearlessly factual, the one, the only, the fabulous 
Catherine Deves. <laughs> Catherine, it is so delightful to have you here this evening. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on your show, Daisy. It's great to be here with ADHTV and I'm doing brilliantly this evening. Thank you. I'm very pleased and this is going to be a really fun chat, I'm sure. Now, Catherine, when you were selected to run for the seat of Warringah, it very quickly turned into a complete media circus. There, there was a point where when it came to media coverage of politicians, you were second only to Scott Morrison, who was literally the prime minister at the time. Were you prepared for this level of attention? I don't think anyone is prepared to be at the centre uh, of a media firestorm. And it was an extraordinary experience to go from, you know, what I saw as being, you know, a regular suburban mum, practising lawyer, uh, put my hand up to run for Warringah because I kept asking candidates to do so. And, and all of a sudden, um, you know, you're... you're I think at one point they said imprints on the internet for you today was like three or four million. It was <gasps> it was insane. Um, and no one can prepare you for that at all, and particularly when it was uh, so vitriolic uh, and escalated so quickly. And what really struck me about all of it was it shouldn't be the words that I was saying. It should have been the argument that I was trying to prosecute. That was the real scandal. Mm. And the, the reason there was so much attention um, on you, of course, was this, this fixation that the Australian media had on the trans issue and, and your, your views on trans people. Um, and this is despite the fact you weren't actually a one-issue candidate. I mean, you were running for the Liberal Party on the Liberal Party platform. It was strange, wasn't it? <sighs> Well, certainly. But I think when they attack you uh, that savagely, you know, you are over your target. And that particular issue, which I had been uh, very vocal on, um, in Australia, the, the debate, so-called debate, had only gone one way. And it was all about being brave and stunning and kind and inclusive. And it was all pro-LGBT. And there had never really been the other side prosecuted in the mainstream that there was another point of view here and in people who are saying that they're trans claiming these rights it was intruding upon the rights of women and girls uh parents families um indeed you know anyone who'd been trying to stand up against it in their lives uh had been uh, were often you know ostracized or shunned or shut down and i had said these things and suddenly thrust um, onto a national platform. So I think it was a bit of a shock to many people that there was actually an alternative viewpoint. And of course, the left and the so-called progressives um, had been pushing this narrative and to actually get some pushback, I think, shocked them. That's a, a very, very good point because it really, certainly in the public sphere, does only kind of go one way, which is which is in a testament to sort of how powerful and how vicious that trans lobby is. You know, they're so litigious. Um, anyone who stands up to them gets just mowed down. And speaking of the things you've said, of, of course, is what happens with political candidates is people that, you know, the dirt unit just combs through all of your personal history. Um, 
And a number of your old tweets were dug up, and there was one in particular that received a huge amount of attention. Um, you described a teenage girl, there was a photo posted of this girl online, she'd had a double mastectomy, so both of her breasts cut off, to affirm her gender, and you described her as having been surgically mutilated. Now, that term surgically mutilated upset a lot of left-wing journalists and public figures because they said it, you know, it was mean and it was this, that and the other. But it seemed to me that the reaction was so virulent because, as the saying goes, truth hurts. I mean, what else has happened to a teenage girl other than surgical mutilation if she's had her perfectly healthy breasts amputated for cosmetic reasons? Absolutely, Daisy. And that photo was posted by that little girl's mother cheering on the procedure. Now, I don't know what sort of a mother thinks it's appropriate for your little girl. And she was a very petite little girl. She looked very young. Uh, to be cheering on the removal of her breasts. And that tweet was in a, a chain of tweets that was actually pushing back against Adam Bant of the Greens, who had a petition up and running where he wanted the Australian taxpayers through Medicare to fund these surgeries and these experimental treatments on children. Now, another word that I used uh, in that tweet was sterilised. And that is what happens when you interfere with a child's puberty. When you arrest their puberty, you put them on puberty blockers for a period of time, you put them on cross-sex hormones, that child is rendered infertile. Now, in any other circumstance in Australia, um, and a child would be put on medical treatment where they're going to be rendered infertile. I mean, there's a very famous case called Marion's case where it was a disabled young woman. The parents wanted um, to go through a procedure of sterilising her because she was very distressed about menstruation and they did not want her uh, to become pregnant. Um, and in the end, the court said, no, we can't do that. But in this particular instance, um, the medical profession, not not everybody, of course, but the zeitgeist seem to be saying, no, this should be applauded, this um, treatment, these experimental treatments, because there is a paucity of evidence. And I was highlighting that there are going to be lawsuits. When these children understand what has been done to them, there will be, and there are already lawsuits afoot in the UK, the USA, etc. And that's what that tweet was highlighting. Exactly, and and rightfully so, because I mean I remember that photo, and you, you think you think of just a she looked about fifteen, like really quite young, petite, with these slashes um, across her chest, her chest, and people just applauding it like it was some wonderful sort of stunning and brave thing. How can people be so ideologically consumed that they'd look at that photo and go, yeah, good. Oh. Daisy, to have a mastectomy is an enormous operation. Um, women who've had to have it because of uh, breast cancer, etc. It's a very lengthy recovery process. We don't actually even quite understand what the loss of breasts do to a woman's overall uh, health and well-being. And, you know, we are hearing stories where this is happening to girls and they, they never fully recover. They still have um, it becomes infected, they have bleeding, they have weeping, they have pain, they have loss of sensation. I mean, this is not 
you know, an, an ordinary cosmetic procedure. It's not like having a nose job. This is removal of breasts of young girls who haven't even, I mean, in some cases they haven't even held hands with, with someone in a romantic sense. So they don't even know what they've lost. They haven't even considered having children. So they don't even know that they are giving up, you know, that absolutely beautiful experience of being able to breastfeed your child. Uh, so in my view, you know, you could, you could conceivably say that this is a, a human rights abuse. I, I think so. I, I mean, like, we talk about informed consent, but, I mean, there's just no one less informed, really, than a 15-year-old than a insecure <laughs> girl who was electing to have her, her breasts removed because adults have told her it's the right thing to do. And, and that's one of the big issues. I mean, you've spoken about it, I've spoken about it, lot, lots of women have mentioned this. There's a disproportionate number of young teenage girls over the last several years um, electing to transition and calling themselves trans, etc. My, my, and that didn't used to be the case 10 years ago. It was mainly men, but it, it switched. My argument has always been about teenage girls. Every teenage girl is uncomfortable with her body and particularly her breasts at some point. It's a massive um, puberty change, growing breasts. Do you reckon in a lot of cases that natural discomfort is sort of facilitated by this trans ideology and so they interpret it as gender dysphoria? I would agree with you with that, uh, Daisy. Uh, obviously, when, I mean, Almost everybody experiences discomfort going through puberty. Your body suddenly becomes uncontrollable. You're having all these weird feelings, particularly for girls. You are now uh, receiving unwanted male attention that you cannot cope with. Your body is now open to, you know, being criticised, commented on, uh, touched, groped, etc. And it is it is a very difficult period. And a lot of the girls who are being caught up by this um, are on the autism spectrum. They are gender non-conforming girls who are could conceivably grow up to be same-sex attracted. There are girls who are being, um, you know, sexually assaulted, who have been sexually abused, who are being bullied, uh, who look at the aesthetic on Instagram at the moment with the Kardashians, etc., and think there is absolutely no way I can even hope to achieve that. So they are, they are seeking refuge by thinking that being seen as a man uh, might might solve their problems. Um, and also when you look at, at porn, I mean, we understand that children are being exposed to porn at younger and younger ages. And when girls see what is being done to women, which in my view is often, you know, tantamount to sexual torture and rape, and they think, if I'm a woman, is that what I have to go and do with a man? So they take refuge in being, you know, non-binary or genderqueer or asexual so they can just avoid putting themselves in situations that they're terrified of being in. And, and that, that whole thought is, is terrifying in itself. I, I, I remember years ago, um, in sort of 2015, I, I looked at this, you know, young generation of, of both teenage girls and teenage boys. They'd sort of be in their early 20s now and thought this sort of, Instagram phenomenon and the exposure to pornography um, is is going to ruin um, relations for a generation of both girls and boys, both in terms of what they think the act is, um, but and also as you've put forward in terms of the the gender issue. Um, is there any way of of halting that? Do you think? 
Look, I think parents have a huge role to play. Um, you have to try and shield your children from being exposed to porn and hypersexualization uh, as best you can, which is extremely difficult. Um, you know, I found myself talking to my young daughters, even at eight and nine, about, you know, being asked to give up, provide photos of themselves naked to the opposite sex to warn them that they someone might show them, you know, porn online and they are entitled to just say no and walk away and to come and tell mummy and daddy. And that is not a conversation I want to be having with my eight-year-old child. But I, I felt that I needed to warn them that this might happen because we are hearing of children in the playground as young as eight or nine um, being exposed to this. But I think, um, you know, Melinda Takehard-Rice does very good work around this through Collective Shout. But uh, ultimately, I would like to see porn being done away with altogether because mm. it's not just children who are being harmed it's also uh, there are marriages falling apart relationships falling apart men becoming addicted to porn uh, there are boys who who don't understand how to have intimate sex anymore because they think a woman wants to be uh, assaulted in the way that they've seen it uh, in porn and girls are thinking that that's what they have to do so they're not enjoying it mm. um, they're being they're having to consent, well, not having to, but they're feeling they have, they're consenting to things they don't want to consent to. So um, personally, I'd like to see all of it wiped off the internet. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. You know, I, I'm, I'm the first person to talk about freedom of speech and freedom of, expre of expression, but sorry, porn is a scourge uh, for all of the reasons you just mentioned. And I, I, would, I will be right there with the, the virtual scrubbing brush <laughs> with you, you getting rid of it if, 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 if that was possible. Now, look, uh, Catherine, on on the subject of the, the 2022 election, I mean, we all remember that Labor's sort of platform there was really a non-platform. They were, they were trying to get the Morrison government on perceived morality issues. That was why there was the fixation on, you know, the Brittany Higgins issue, um, without going into too much detail. Um, do you think that the fixation that Labor had and the media, because they were helping it along, um, on your views on trans issues and women's sex-based rights was part of that plan to defeat the Morrison government on this perceived morality basis rather than good policy? Oh, look, I think, you know, the other side, they love um, selling their ideas to the public, you know, on, on the vibe and being kind and being inclusive. Um, Labor have a position uh, where they are pro-trans, where uh, I believe in their document for um, for the election, they were saying, you know, a woman can be, you know, whoever identifies as such. So that was part of their policy. Um, so then to see me, I mean, I was just a, an, an easy target, I suspect. And the fact that I had the support of, you know, Scott Morrison, um, yeah, they absolutely turned it to their advantage. And instead of you know, looking at the fact that I was making these arguments and the fact that there is an alternative opinion, um, you know, they were able to just push that to the side because I'd, I'd said words, um, you know, I'd, I'd use analogies <laughs> that they were able to take the worst possible bad faith uh, take on it. And, you know, they, they were able to, to use it to provide a distraction from, from the fact that, you know, their policies are weak. Yes. Mm. And, and as we can see now, that uh, weak slash no policy uh, platform is uh, kind of rearing its head, given, this, the, given the state of the country at the moment, that is for sure. Now, your um, work for women's sex-based rights obviously precedes your run for the seat of Warringah. Prior to politics, you co-founded the group Save Women's Sports. Tell us a bit about that initiative. 
So back in 2019, uh, I joined forces with some women in New Zealand with respect to the sports issue because I saw sports policies that were being put forward by the Australian Human Rights Commission and Sport Australia that were uh, overriding sex-based categories for sport with self-selected gender identity. Uh, that continues to this day here in Australia. Um, and no one was speaking up for the little girls. You know, I have three little girls of my own. And I thought to myself, how would it impact little girls when they have to compete against boys, uh, when they could be hurt, when they could like, actually physically hurt in, you know, combat or collision sports, um, when they're up against competitors with whom they can never compete because of by virtue of their physiology. Uh, and I very much felt compelled to speak because it didn't at that point feel like anybody else was. So uh, we started this group. Um, look, I'm a practicing lawyer now, so there are some other fabulous women who continue to raise awareness uh, in that space here in Australia. Um, but there are many examples now of men and boys intruding into, into women's sports uh, here and overseas. And look, the big trick that the left plays when you bring up the effect of males in women's sports is to say, oh, but it doesn't affect that many people. It's a tiny proportion of people. But that is a total furphy, isn't it, that it doesn't, you know, affect that many people? Yes, that is factually untrue. Uh, there are certain sports where it's not being tolerated anymore. Um, and there are certain sports like cycling in the United States where it's being absolutely infiltrated. Every, almost every day, week on week, we are hearing stories. And it's not just that particular race or that particular game where that man is playing. It's also all the women that he has pushed out of the way uh, to, to get to that level. And say he comes first. So every single one of those women is, is knocked down a peg. Um, and there's also this concept of um, what we call trans-tourism. So you've got one sport that shuts it down, say with boxing, and then that, that male will then move to another sport. So they're sort of going to the sports where they know uh, they'll be tolerated. And there are women self-excluding and, and women um, who are seeing these men competing and parents are saying, no, I don't want my daughter to play that sport. Or I've even heard stories here in New South Wales for a particular um, team sport played on a field where if the girls were forfeiting and they were going to have to play against a team where there was uh, more than one male and it was a collision sport, that team was going to be fined. <gasps> so I'd also like to financial fines if they, if, if they forfeited. So these girls are being forced to play against these men. And it's not just those girls who are being directly affected, but it's also the message that you're sending to women and to girls, to aspiring sportswomen. Um, there's this concept called learned helplessness. Hmm. So these girls, no matter how hard they train, the sacrifices they make, no matter how hard they perform on the day, they will never be able to uh, compete with these men because of the biological um, differences. So these girls are being taught that their feelings don't matter, that their natural instincts do not want to be in a change room with these blokes. You only have to go and listen to um, Paula Scanlon, who had to change with Leah Thomas three times a week for, mm. for several years. Um, so those girls are, are being told, you know, their boundaries don't matter, how they feel doesn't matter. So we're also teaching girls how to be, you know, the next generation of victims because the feelings of one man coming into that space takes precedence over all the girls who are already there. 
So, you know, this is this is a movement that is based on a lie and it is deeply misogynist at its core um, and the whole of society is being forced to go along with it. Um, so, no, I, I absolutely refute the argument that there's only a few of them and it's not a big deal. Mm. Well, exactly. And the irony, Catherine, is, I mean, you, what infuriates me is you have these kind of modern Gen X, Gen Y, Zuma feminists who are women, adult human females, going along with this and going, oh, trans women are women and, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, no, tr tr trans women are trans. You know, they're, they're not women. Um, but in the same breath, they'll talk about empowering women and making them not feel like victims. And yeah, you can do you can do anything in life. But as you pointed out, this learned helplessness is a direct byproduct of the trans movement. How can these modern feminists not see that? They're not feminists. Mm. They're hypocrites and they're traitors to their sex. Uh, any woman who believes that a man is a woman because he says so um, and welcomes him into this space, she's participating in, in her own oppression. And, you know, a lot of the women who do get up and go, trans women are women and there's nothing to see here and parents who are concerned about their daughter's uh, sports are transphobic bigots. These are very privileged women oftentimes. They are not the ones who, if they want to go for a swim, have to go to the local pool and share the change rooms. You know, they're, they're not the women in prison or who have the need for domestic violence services or support groups for homeless women. Um, you know, they, they're not the ones who are having to bear the brunt of this. It is women who are, who are poor, who are marginalised. Um, so, you know, I look at those women who rah-rah, you know, trans women are women and, um, you know, I, I do have contempt for them because they are throwing away the rights of other women. And you know what? I think we can see that contrast personified so well with the attitudes of J.K. Rowling uh, compared to the attitudes of Emma Watson. Now, J.K. Rowling once described herself in a speech as she used to be as poor as you could be in the UK without being homeless. And then she wrote these wonderful books. She was a domestic violence victim, so presumably she had to maybe rely on public facilities and public house, house, you know, public housing at some point. Meanwhile, Emma Watson has Oxbridge parents. She became very rich as a little girl when she got into the Harry Potter movies, and she's well on the trans. <laughs> women are women bandwagon and threw J.K. Rowling to the wolves when J.K. Rowling had the audacity to um, su suggest, look, I have nothing against trans women, but maybe biological sex is important. Do you think the difference in those women um, epitomises the, the irony of those attitudes? It seems so. Um, I mean, it doesn't cost Emma Watson anything to say trans women are women. Mm. Um, but for J.K. Rowling to stand up and demonstrate such courage, and she has now come out and said, you know, I was in a position where, you know, she wasn't going to lose her livelihood. She wasn't going to become homeless should she say something. Um, and and she did that. And, you know, she's at this point where she started up a domestic violence shelter in Edinburgh. Um, and she didn't do it as a charity because mm. she knew they could come after her charitable status. She didn't rent the premises. She bought them so the landlord can never kick her out. Wow. Uh, and she's made it for for women only. So I think, you know, for these women who go along with the narrative, it, it just, it doesn't cost them anything. And, you know, while I, I understand that the vast majority of people don't want anyone to be discriminated against or, mm, or exactly. beaten up or not get a job or not be able to access accommodation. But, you know, that is not 
what we're arguing about here. What we're arguing about is that, you know, most of the time sex doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, you know, what you want to wear or if you want to wear makeup or have your nails done, etc. But sometimes sex really matters. Mm. And in those instances, particularly when women are vulnerable, we should be able to say no to any male in particular spaces. Um, and, and that's the thrust of the argument. So when I look at someone like Emma Watson, who's been extremely privileged, just throwing away the rights of women, well, I don't think history is going to be kind to those women. No, I I, I don't think so um, at all, particularly not Emma Watson with her terrible disloyalty to J.K. Rowling, with, with, without whom uh, she would certainly not be where she is today. Now, on the subject again of, of women's sports, what, what I, I find just so outrageous is the insistence by trans activists that somehow trans women, so we're talking biological males here, do not have an unfair advantage over women in sports. I mean, they'll argue that the hormone replacement therapy is enough to sufficiently reduce the natural strength advantage males have over females. But as we saw, from the international swimming body FINA, who launched an investigation into this last year. That's certainly not the case, is it? Look, it was very interesting when FINA tried to address this issue by offering a third option, an open category, and what do you know, no one signed up. <laughs> so that just proves our point. This is not about being included and having opportunity. This is about intruding into women's spaces. It's about using women to, you know, validate a female uh, gender identity. And sometimes I wonder if these people pushing this narrative ever get off their keyboard and actually go out <laughs> into real life because the, the physical differences between men and women begin accruing in utero when a male fetus gets a big dose of testosterone about six weeks after conception. He gets a big dose about six weeks after birth that continues throughout childhood and obviously manifests uh, upon, very visibly manifests upon puberty. So there is this accrued benefit of testosterone. So even when they're little, five or six or seven, you can see differences between boys and girls. Of course, you'll get some outlier girls who will still beat the boys when they're younger, but essentially all you have to do is look at um, all the world records over the last 150 years or whatever, and you will see the vast differences between men and women. Men outperform women on every single metric except for, I think, it's uh, flexibility um, and, and balance. I mean, mm. strength, stamina, size, speed... And while the trans like to drill it down to individuals and saying, oh, well, what about this individual or that outlier? Sport is not individuals. It is based on categories. Yeah. That is why we have men and women. And the reason we have categories is for maximum inclusion. So not just on the basis of sex, but also, say, size in, in boxing or rugby, uh, ability. So why we have the Paralympics, um, you know, races for blind people, etc. Et so we, we have these categories, age, obviously. I mean, we're not mm. going to have an 18-year-old boy play with the 12-year-olds in rugby, are we? So no. categories for maximum inclusion. So them sitting there going, oh, all the sports have to assess every single you know, competitors, you know, size and weight and strength, like that is just completely unfeasible. It is an absurd proposition. So I think we just stick to the six categories and then we can have maximum inclusion.
Well, I, I think so too. I mean, it's as as you've said before, and I've said before, it's a clash of rights. And you know, when when you have a clash of rights, well, you you know, it's the right to um, sex, to right to fairness, really, for women, and then the right to self-expression for trans women. I, I think you've got to look at it in a utilitarian way: the greatest good for the greatest number. So, uh, in that clash of rights, surely the rights for women to have fairness and sex-based rights has to trump the right of trans women to feel included doesn't it? 100% Daisy. The feelings of men uh, should not be trumping the right of women to not be hurt in sport, their right to uh, fair competition uh, and to dignity. Uh, this is this is absolutely a clash of rights and, and feelings should not be trumping biological fact. Mm, absolutely. Well said, very well said. Now, Catherine, um, you were in the Victorian Parliament this week, weren't you, at an event called Why Can't Women Talk About Sex? Tell us, how did it go? How did it go? What happened? Uh, Daisy, I was so proud of the speakers. Um, some of them have done it a few times and every time they are becoming more and more articulate about telling their stories. Uh, on Tuesday, we had some new women join the lineup. We had uh, Carol from the Lesbian Action Group, who has been denied an exemption by the Australian Human Rights Commission to hold a lesbian-only event on Lesbian uh, International Lesbian Day. <laughs> we had a young woman. <laughs> how absurd! Uh, we had a young woman called Alexandra, a young gender non-conforming woman who received. She was knocked unconscious <gasps> and had a concussion. Um, down in Melbourne in March at the Let Women Speak rally and she has been left with a, a recovery that has been extremely difficult for her. She told her stories. And then we had two young detransitioners, both young women who um, are on the spectrum, one of whom did have her breast removed and is now suffering um, complications from that. Uh, another young woman uh, who put up her hand to run for student council in Melbourne uh, and who was absolutely uh, vilified and attacked. Um, so to hear their stories, extremely powerful. And we are going to continue to go to every single parliament in Australia, and we're going to keep doing it uh, until they listen. As, as you should. I mean, it's a wonderful initiative and you are all so brave for doing that. And you have attended and spoken at a number of these events and these rallies now for women's sex debates rights. And what I've noticed, a common factor at these events, not only the ones you attend, but also ones that are overseas, the common factor seems to be that a bunch of adult human male counter-protesters show up, behave aggressively, often physically aggressively, and shout obscenities at the women who are trying to speak. That's not a great advertisement for self-identification laws that would allow any male to enter a women's bathroom, is it? It's an absolute own goal. It is absolutely <laughs> proving. <laughs> it's proving the need for women-only spaces. And some of these men have been, and, and women, some mm. little handmaids who follow along, have been <laughs> incredibly violent and threatening. The threats have been appalling. They've been graphic. There have been women who've been uh, assaulted who have actually been left disabled by some of these trans activists. Um, you know, the women will be hounded, they will be sworn at. It's literally like a, a public shunning. And sometimes the police are good and they step in. Other times 
uh, no, they, they allow the women to be surrounded and to be threatened. And it just goes to the point of letting women speak. What is it about what women are saying that these men and their handmaids are so determined to shut women up? But what it does is every time we get attacked, every time there's an appalling, um, you know, display and swearing and carrying on, it goes viral. Mm. So it's getting our message out there. So we do have to thank our detractors <laughs> for mm. bringing attention to what we're trying to say. And that often is the way, isn't it? It's always it's the, the radical activists who who reveal what the cause is really about that are often the best proponents of of whatever it is that you know, whatever um, cause you're trying to um, to push forward. Um, and look, the interesting thing is, like I've I've always wondered why it's the trans cause specifically, along with climate change, but particularly the trans cause that really gets the left going. They have all the reactions you've described. Um, one that springs to mind was when um, Posey Parker, who's a women's rights activist, I think was in New Zealand and nearly got crushed by the weight of protesters. Is it testament, do you think, that this movement is driven by a total misogyny uh, that makes the reaction so virulent? Yeah, it is unbridled misogyny. There are men who have a very deep hatred for women, some men, and this movement gives them carte blanche to come out uh, to act however they want. You know, that one of the men over in Auckland, I mean, he came wearing body armour. <laughs> Um, when we were, yes, and, and, and attacked an, an elderly woman. And when there was the protest down in Melbourne in, in March, uh, the infamous protest uh, when Moira Deeming was one of the organisers and obviously have um, has suffered greatly uh, because of that in her profession. I mean, again, there were men who showed up in body armour and were attacking the police horses. We were told, we had a few men pointed out to us and the police said to us, if those men break ranks, you need to run. I mean, and I'm thinking, well, we're a bunch of middle-aged women. Where, where are we <laughs> going to run to? Like, what are these men going to do to us? Why are they so... Uh, enraged. And it gave me a sense of, you know, 500 years ago when they were burning women at the stake, this is how the villagers act. This is how we got to, we got to that point, you know, all those centuries ago, because you have these disobedient women who won't bend the knee and who are saying no, uh, and also saying we won't go along with the delusion. And unfortunately, a lot of these men who are pretending to be women, they are suffering from a paraphilia called autogynophilia, mm. um, where part of it is, you know, they see their object of their, their, their sexual target is themselves as a woman. So when we come along and we say, we're not playing that game, we are not going to acknowledge you as women, you know, do whatever you like, but you can't come in our spaces uh, where we are and where our children are, we spoil their fun. And they mm. get very, very angry about that. And I think that's where we see it, um, all this anger and aggression playing out um, when there are rallies. Uh, and also, indeed, online, the online abuse, of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, the online abuse. Uh, we've, one only has to look at uh, one of J.K. Rowling's tweets, just at a few of the replies, uh, to see to see a, a high-profile example of the, of the kind of online abuse that those women um, cop. And look, look, I've always said, you know, the left talks a lot about misogyny. I don't talk about misogyny very much. It's not really my thing, but one thing I will always say is all of the worst misogynists I have ever known have been men on the left, especially the ones that call themselves male feminist. Is that something you've found? 
I have a whole gallery of men <laughs> who are sort of um, in their 50s or 60s. They're a bit scruffy looking. You look at their profiles. They've got pronouns. They're saying whatever Indigenous land they're on. You know, they're definitely <laughs> on the left. And and the abuse that they dish out in their own names, uh, we can also see where they are employed. And the fact that they feel emboldened to do this, there is an absolute type. And I always take a little screenshot and I pop it in my folder and you scroll through and it's exactly the same type of male. And they are absolutely vile, some of them. Um, very graphic sexual threats, very disparaging, rude, swearing. It's it's disgusting. I've, I've really been shocked at mm. how um, how much some men hate women. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty eye-opening and I, I've seen uh, similar guys on Twitter, you know, I, I, I don't make, I don't read that many tweets, like I, you know, I rarely read replies, but sometimes in my weaker moments I'll have a scroll through and I'll go, oof, oh, okay, he's, he's angry and I'll, I'll click on, out of curiosity, click on his profile and often it'll be, his profile picture will be him and little girls that I presume are his daughters. I mean, <laughs> I mean, those those poor little girls, what kind of hope do they have if those are the types of men that are raising them? Uh, exactly. I wonder if their wives and sisters and daughters and employers knew what they were saying on social media, would they say it? They wouldn't dare say it to my face. No. They wouldn't dare say it to my face when my husband is standing there. But I think, yeah, social media has really... Uh, emboldened, you know, the, the worst of humanity. It feels like, you know, there are no more boundaries um, and people sort of aren't, you know, bound by what used to be sort of the rules of civil discourse. Um, and as you started out with this interview this morning in, in talking about conservative women, and I mean, I believe I'm just, you know, holding a common sense position, you know, to, to be fair, I don't necessarily see it as conservative, but that's sort of where I've found my political home with people with uh, similar views. Um, but yeah, with, with respect to that, I, I think civil discourse has, has really declined and social media has a lot to do with it. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite, I don't know, it's quite alarming to see yeah. how some men now feel emboldened. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's extremely alarming. Um, now, we have to, I have to ask you, you're actually currently working on a very interesting court case, um, and that is the Tickle v. Giggle court case. Um, you're very, very busy at the moment. That's why I'm so thrilled you could, you could take uh, time out to, to chat to me this evening. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Tickle v. Giggle? So, yes, I am uh, on the legal team for Tickle versus Giggle. This is uh, currently running through the Federal Court of Australia. And essentially, this is, it's a novel area of law and it's testing the tension between sex and gender identity. Uh, so gender identity inserted into the Sex Discrimination Act in 2013 by our uh, first uh, female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. And <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> I know, right? Um but it alludes to, you know, what we talked about before. Do women have the right to have a female-only space or does the self-declared gender identity of someone born male who wants to go into that space, who whose rights take precedence? Um, so that's being tested with Tickle versus Giggle at the moment. Uh, obviously, this has come up in the this recent decision as well in the Australian Human Rights Commission denying lesbians the right to hold a lesbian-only event. So, no, if you've got a male who identifies as trans, he must um, have entry according to the AHRC. So, 
as it stands in Australia, uh, uh, women really can't have have male free spaces. So. I suspect, um, you know, there might even be a few more uh, cases up and coming um, as as women start to fight back. But it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out um, with Tickle, uh, the decision there, because this is the first time it's been tested. Mm. I'm, I'm fascinated to see how that case goes. And, and just before we go, Catherine, I have to get a, a comment from you on this. You mentioned... Dear Julia Gillard, Australia's first female, adult human female prime minister, it's, isn't it ironic that it was Julia Gillard's government who took the terms man and woman out of the Sex Discrimination Act and arguably opened the legal floodgates to this whole mess? Oh, absolutely. And then she <laughs> compounded it by clowning herself. I think it was last month when she was yeah. asked what a woman was and spent four minutes waffling about it. So... <laughs> You know, Julia cannot call herself a feminist. Uh, she has absolutely betrayed Australian women uh, and she's caused all this mess, yes, that we're now having to uh, clear up by uh, having, with my client, having to litigate in the courts. So <laughs> uh, she shouldn't be receiving any awards for Woman of the Year or feminism in, in my view. Oh, well, yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And look, Catherine, if there if there is anyone who can take this battle head on and win, it is absolutely you. Catherine Deves, you are remarkable and wonderful and gorgeous. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming to have a chat to me this evening. It's been a delight. Yes, it's been wonderful to join you for this chat, Daisy. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for tonight on Daisy Cousins Presents. It was such a thrill to chat to the brilliant and brave Catherine Deves. And I want to give an extra comment about a topic we touched on. I mean it when I said that pornography is a scourge and that I would be the first with the virtual scrubbing brush if it was possible to wipe it all off the face of the internet. I don't have any religious or ideological motivation for my stance. The facts about pornography are all anyone should need to oppose its production and distribution. Pornography's effects on relationships and on the perceptions both adults and teenagers have of sex and sexuality, as Catherine and I discussed, are obvious. But those are not the only problems with porn. For example, there is no way to tell definitively whether a piece of pornographic material is consensual. Even if performers appear to be consenting, there are countless stories of performers being threatened with being blacklisted, being sued, being refused pay, if they didn't perform the acts required of them, no matter how brutal. And this leads me to another fact. Pornography is often synonymous with sex trafficking. See, sex trafficking isn't just what you see in things like the Hollywood movie Taken, although stories like that do tragically occur. If a pornography performer is forced, tricked, or coerced into pornography production, or is drugged, raped, and then filmed, that's sex trafficking. Pornography can also be used to groom human trafficking victims to train them on what's expected of them when a, a customer arrives. And not only that, Pornography can normalise sexual objectification and sexual violence to the point that in some cases, the desensitisation of consumers can manifest in greater willingness to pay for sex, which in turn increases the demand for human trafficking. 
But it's not just the effects on society and the connection with sex trafficking that are a problem. Pornography consumption can physically change the brain. An anti-porn organization called Fight the New Drug has provided a handy resources for this kind of vital information. So we put people in the scanner and looked at their brain activity. We were interested in what effects do potentially long-term usage of, of pornographic material have on, on brain structure. So basically we found in our study that the grey matter in the reward centre is generally smaller in those people who watch more porn. What we also did is look at um, how the brain region that is smaller in structure, namely the reward region, is connected to other parts in the brain. We found that the more porn people watch, the less well the, the reward region is connected to prefrontal cortex. That their prefrontal cortex was less well able to control activity in the reward region. So the, the connection between prefrontal cortex, that is the braking mechanism, um, onto the reward system was less strong. Pornography can also have dire effects on mental health, leaving consumers feeling empty, desensitized, and unable to fully connect with or love other people. Pornography right now functions as a super normal stimulus. Everything is exaggerated and as we consume those images over and over again, it can't help but influence how we see ourselves but also how we start to see others. I reached a point where I was just done. It wasn't that I thought the actual thought, I want to die. It was that I want the pain to stop. I want the guilt to stop. I want to stop hurting people around me. It made me feel probably the worst feeling of emptiness, but you can't do anything about it. You can't, you can't even feel it, but you know it's there. You know it's the only thing there and it consumes you but there's nothing, you just, you can't even, you're just numb to it all, it's completely flat, you're just like a robot. A new phenomenon is happening in which I've tried to sound an alarm because it's not temporary, it's not a phase. Young men and women's lives are being ruined by excessive pornography. And of course, most horrifically, mainstream porn outlets like Pornhub are notoriously bad at moderating their platforms to remove child sexual abuse. In fact, a 2020 expose of Pornhub's parent company, MindGeek, by the New York Times, sometimes they do good work, found there was such a plethora of child sexual abuse material, as, whether, as, as well as other non-consensual material on the site, major credit card companies announced they would suspend all payment processing on MindGeek sites and the Canadian House of Commons Ethics Committee launched an investigation into the company. As a result, Pornhub, after ignoring for years the pleas of people begging them to take down non-consensual content, finally sprang into action and ended up removing about 80% of the content from the entire website. Considering that action, you can imagine what had been uploaded, or perhaps you'd rather not. Considering all of this, it's no wonder that in Australia, while online pornography is legal, it's illegal to sell or exhibit X18 plus pornographic videos in all Australian states, although it's really enforced. 
Pornography has many well-documented negative effects on individuals and society. There is literally no societal upside to its production. And the fact it is so easily accessible to children and teenagers nowadays, thanks to the internet, should be enormous cause for concern. Yet still, there is no national conversation about it. My question is, how long will it be before today's modern sex-positive feminists who help facilitate the world of porn through their enabling rhetoric look around and think, what the hell have we done? That's it from me tonight. Make sure you tune in next week for more of the world's most fascinating creative people. Up next is the Alan Jones program, guest hosted this week by the great Jason Morrison. Good night, world. I'll see you soon.